listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, January 24th, 2021 at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. As we get started, you're not going to believe me, so I brought evidence, but the last time that I personally posted on Instagram, I had to look it up. It was October 30th, 2011. And there's the picture. I think it'll come up. At least if you're here, you'll see it right there. That was it. My last post. Now, Luke Skywalker is now 6'2". And Princess Leia is now 11. And my youngest was only three months old. That was the last time. Um, And so I thought, well, was I more relevant on Facebook? So I went and looked at Facebook. And I was never much of a Facebook poster What I generally did was I played with Twitter, and I would just send Twitter feeds to Facebook. But the last tweet to Facebook that I personally made, I had to look it up, was April 17th, 2017. And I have a picture for that one. I was kind of into pictures. Some of you might know who that is. That's Hapthor Bjornsson. That's the world's strongest man. In 2017, he was probably more famous to most people by being the mountain on the Game of Thrones. 6'9", 400 pounds, size 17 shoe. I was flying to Germany to see the Wits, and the cheapest flight was on Iceland Air through Iceland. He's Icelandic. He was going home. We sat next to each other the whole time. And I took a couple of pictures. Super nice guy, just to give you a heads up on celebrities. This guy, we were held over at JFK for a long time, like six extra hours. He must have signed a thousand autographs and took a picture with everybody who came up to him. So I decided not to bother him. Instead, while he was sleeping, I just kind of took a picture, and I tweeted to Facebook, I'm literally next to a sleeping giant. Right there, April 17th, 2017. Now, I'm not saying any of this um, in an effort to make a, a statement as to whether or not being on social media is a good thing or a bad thing. Although I will say, I do think as a church family, at some point in the near future, we're probably going to have to have some family conversations about how we view and use social media, knowing the way that social media companies view and use us and the way that we tend to respond to those things. But that's not what I'm trying to get after today. I only show these things and and mention the dates as a level of evidence so that when I say what I'm about to say, you'll be more likely to believe me so that you can believe my surprise when I tell you how shocked I was to recently learn that there are actually apps and filters for some of your social media apps. Now, no, this is, new, this is not new news to most of you, but there was to me. Apps and filters that allow you to take a picture of yourself and it makes you look like 10 pounds lighter and literally smooths things on your face. So as you look at yourself on your phone, the person looking back at you is not your real self. It's you with some of the things that you find less desirable removed. And that could sound like a lot of fun for a party or something, you know. But I started to think about how detrimental that is to our mental and emotional health over a long period of time. Looking at ourselves with only our less desirable aspects removed. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized 
this might actually be contributing to us being more fond of our phones than we are the Bible. Because the less desirable parts of our human nature are never hidden when we read the Bible. Every time we open God's word and begin to read it, we see sinners who share a common condition with us. And as we come to the Bible and we read the stories, what we're seeing reflected back to us is a picture of ourselves. The Bible is a painfully honest book. It's real people in the real world relating to one another and to the real God. It's another sermon for another time, but if there was ever a solid argument for the inspiration of God's Word, it would be the reflection of the brokenness and the sinfulness of humanity that are in all the stories. We would never write half the stories in the Bible if it were up to us. But this isn't just exposure for the sake of exposure. It's exposing the reality of who we really are, that less desirable part of ourself, that sin nature for a purpose. So it's more like an MRI that reveals a dangerous growth at work inside of your body. Once you see it and reckon with its presence and reckon with its reality, now you can actually get on the path towards health and towards healing. And I mention all of this because this morning, as we open up God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 27, we're coming to one of, if not the most dark part of the story. The next couple of chapters, chapters 27 and 28, are are going to bring us face to face with some of the less desirable sides of our humanity as we look at David in chapter 27 and look at Saul in chapter 28. Both David and Saul are going to find themselves in situations where they're facing and wrestling with real despair. And chapters 27 and 28 are going to narrate for us how they actually responded. Saul's response, we'll see it next week, is probably characteristic of what you think about Saul, but David's response to the despair that he finds himself in, it's not characteristic and it's shocking, but at the same time as we read it, we realize it's also very relatable. And so as you open up your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 27, we're going to begin looking at this chapter, and as we do, let me just remind you that David is is living between the anointing of God as the next king and the time in which he's going to be appointed. And as we'll talk about in this chapter, it's been probably 10 to 15 years. David's been on the run, been hunted, been betrayed, been living this way. And it's been a long time. And it's been a difficult road for him. He's had to wrestle with the promises of God and the hope in God and the hope in those promises and the everyday reality that he faces while he's on the run. And it's this space between the the promises of God and the hope of God and the reality of a broken world. It's the space between those two things where we live, and it's the space between those two things where despair really threatens to set in, where you and I can find ourselves not only feeling desperate, but feeling stuck. And this is where David is as we pick up the story, and it begins this way in verse 1. Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. That in and of itself, if you just stop right there, if you've been with us through the whole story, that's a staggering moment. I mean, ever since David entered into the story, 
Ever since he was born and we've picked up his story, we've had a front row seat to God providentially and sovereignly intervening in David's life over and over again for his physical well-being and his spiritual well-being. Protecting David physically, guiding him, nourishing him as he's been on the run. Spiritually, as he's given him Jonathan, as he's given him moments even with Abigail and with others that are within his company and the priest, encouraging him, strengthening his hands in the Lord. Sovereignly and providentially, God has been caring for David's physical and spiritual needs. But, but now we're beginning to hear and, and see a man that, that seems worn down. 10 to 15 years, he's been on the run. Dale Davis, the great Old Testament scholar, he said that David's been hunted, tracked, and attacked by Saul. He's been treacherously exposed, yet he's made thrilling escapes. He's executed daring escapades. There have been nine chapters full of high blood pressure narratives. It's the stuff that makes great movies but it's the stuff that takes a toll on real people. We read it and we love the story. David's been living it for a long time. And here's what he's concluded as the chapter starts. I shall perish by Saul's hand. And the freight, the emotional and the the mental freight of what David's saying here is, is captured in that word perish. That word literally means being swept away. It's used three times in 1 Samuel. The first time it's used, it's used back in chapter 12, when God speaks of the fate of Israel and her king if they disobey his commands. Israel and her king will be swept away. It's used the second time, just a chapter earlier in chapter 26. When David, having stayed his right-hand man's desire to put a spear through Saul's chest, begins to speak about how God may bring an end to Saul's reign. He says this in chapter 26, as the Lord lives, the Lord will either strike him or his day will come to die or he'll go down into battle and perish, be swept away. As we begin this episode in David's life, he seems to be resigned in his heart to the fate of being swept away by Saul, even though this is contrary to everything that he's experienced and all that God has promised. I mean, even back in chapter 23, we read that Saul has pursued David day by day, but God does not give David into Saul's hand. And just as you read the story and you think about it like a human, circumstantially, nothing substantial has really changed. Saul's still king. David's still on the run. God's promises haven't gotten weaker. Saul hasn't gotten more powerful. In fact, if anything, David's strength has grown as more have come to join him. Circumstantially, nothing substantial has changed. But something significant has changed in David's heart. There's nothing better, he says, for me than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will despair of seeking me any longer within the borders of Israel, and I shall escape out of his hand. Despair sets into the heart when you and I give in to the temptation to shrink 
our confidence in God and the promises of God down to the size of our present reality and situation. David's heart is being overwhelmed with despair. Yet that's not exactly how everyone sees it. It's actually, if you read the text honestly, it's hard to know exactly why David makes the decision. Is it just a pure lack of confidence in God? Has despair set in to such a degree that he shrunk the promises of God and his hope in God down to the size of this threat in front of him rather than the bigness for all that it is? Or or is there an element of wisdom in David's decision? Some people read it this way. I mean, David has been given the promise of God, been anointed by the prophet. He's going to be the king of Israel. His numbers have grown, but Israel and territory hasn't grown. There's only so many places that he and the thousands that are with him can continue to go and hide. At some point, Saul will find him. That's what he seems to be afraid of. And at that point, he's now fearing he's going to be swept away. But at that point, he's going to have to fight Saul. If he's going to be king... Would it not be better for him to make the next right decision and avoid the situation and wait for Saul's day to come or for Saul to go into battle with someone else and perish and then return and take the throne as he's been anointed? I mean, think about it. If he stuck around with his fighting men and he ended up having to do battle with Saul, would that not be a blight on his reputation at some point if he defeats Saul and people say, well, look, You got the throne because you killed the king. Maybe there was wisdom for David. Many people read it this way. He had a lot of people to take care of. And if I'm really honest as I read it, I probably think it's a little bit of both. I think despair and fear and doubt can lead us to rationalize any number of decisions that on the surface can look and sound very wise. And even in the circumstances that we're in, they may actually be. But why we get there is important. How we get there is important. Either way, whether it was pure despair and lack of confidence, or even if it was a little bit of wisdom, either way, the despair that David was feeling birthed a determination in his mind to fix his reality. This is what happens sometimes when you and I feel despair setting in. We get determined to fix it. That's what we're going to do. And this is what we see with David. Verse 2, David arose and he went over. That's a massive statement. That's actually a political statement. David arose. When you read in the Bible that people arise... That's not just like a physical getting up out of a chair. That is settling in the mind a determined decision to make and then moving on it. David arose and then went over. He crossed a line. He moved from one side to the other. He and the 600 men who were with him. To Achish, the son of Maok, king of Gath. And David lived with Achish at Gath, he and his men, every man with his household, and David with his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, Nabal's widow. And when it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, he no longer sought him. So, on the surface, 
David's plan worked, didn't it? The concern that was voiced was, if I can flee, maybe Saul won't follow. And here we have in verse 4, Saul didn't seek him anymore. So on the surface, it worked, right? But at what cost? David had to go over to the Philistines. And when he did, he took a massive fighting force with him. That against all reason, when you read the story, the Philistine king saw as an asset. And here's the thing, before we consider why he saw it as an asset, you, you've got to pick up on something else the writer says. When it says that David and his men went over and lived with Achish, you don't live with the king without submitting to the king. This is what's going on in David's life. Now, now why would the king of the Philistines, why would Achish of Gath receive David and an army of 600 fighting men and all of their families? Why would he be okay with this? This isn't the first time David's come to him. If you remember the story, David fled to Gath earlier, but he fled by himself. And within a day, he was discovered. They found out who he was. And the only way he could get out was by pretending to be a madman, spittle running down his beard. They get rid of him, right? But now he comes back with 600 men and all their families. Scholars say numbers upwards of two to 3,000 people. And the king receives him. Why would he do that? Well, we don't know for certain, but if you read it like a human, he had to be aware of what was going on between David and Saul. And everyone knows the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? Safer for Achish to receive David and his army than it was to make him an enemy as well. So David and his growing tribe find a refuge in Gath, Goliath's hometown. And there David is with Goliath's sword still in his possession, finding refuge in Goliath's hometown with all of his fighting men and all of their families. And so after a period of time, verse 5 picks up, David says to Achish, the king, if I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Hold on a second. If I have found favor, if your servant has found favor in your eyes. By his own words, David seems to be declaring that he's a favored servant of Israel's largest enemy. What is going on? The despair that seems to have set in on David's heart after 10, 12, 15 years of long living and running in caves and the determination that he made in his mind and in his heart to fix his reality has got to be coupled, and you know it as you experience in your own life, it's got to be coupled with some level of denial. A false hope that our hearts and our minds concoct for ourselves. It's got to be better for me here now. Space and freedom. And so verse 6 tells us that that day Achish gave David Ziklag. 
That's a smart move on Akish's part. Again, you have to read the story like a human. This is real. It's going to be hard for Akish in his royal city with all of the people that he leads, cares for, and rules over to accept another two to 3,000 people. That's two to 3,000 mouths to feed. That's a lot of people taking up space in that town. And not only that, that's two to 3,000 people, 600 of them fighting men that have defeated forces of thousands living right there. What if they change their mind? They're a little bit of a liability, right? But whatever David's been doing up to this point, he's been doing it well enough that he finds favor in Achish's eyes, so he deserves something from Achish as well. So here's what Achish does. He's pretty shrewd. He gives David a city in the southern edges of his Philistine territory. It's on the borders of the edges of Judah and Philistia. It's a city called Ziklag. And he gives it to David and all of his men and all of their families to go and to live. And now David has space. Space for his growing numbers to live, to spread out. And he has freedom out from under the prying eyes and noses of of Achish and all of his men. He can go and do as he pleases. So it seems to work out well. And then you have to consider this. This isn't the first time that we've heard of Ziklag. Ziklag was one of the towns numbered amongst the areas given to Simeon when God promised to give the land of promise to his people and he distributed the area by tribe. Under Simeon's tribe was the town of Ziklag. And if you remember the story, Israel was to go into the promised land and was to defeat and to remove all of those peoples and all of those tribes in that land and occupy that land that God had promised. God's judgment was coming to those tribes through Israel. But they failed to do it. Only in certain areas did they completely obey God. Rather, in other areas, they either acquiesced, compromised, or didn't overthrow at all. Ziklag was one of those areas. So is David reclaiming an ancient town that God had promised for Israel? Is that what's really happening? People who want to read this through the lens of a particular type of shrewdness and and wisdom on David's part see that David may have requested Ziklag as an effort to go and continue the obedience that God had demanded of his people generations before or while in exile from Israel. Having made such a decision as despair had taken over his heart, Is David completing the conquest of Ziklag inadvertently? We don't actually know. It doesn't tell us. But what we do know is that now living in Ziklag, David and his followers are once again within the borders of the promised land. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. So for 16 months... This is where David has been since he crossed over. Now, reading it like a human, how do you think that looked back in Israel? What do you think the the people thought about what was going on with David? I mean, Saul knew where David was and what he was doing. That's why he quit pursuing him. Do you think Saul kept that information to himself? Imagine if Saul had Twitter. Every Israelite across the territories would have known exactly what was going on. David, your hero, the one you've sung songs about, he's crossed over. He's living over in Philistine territory. 
He's given himself over to our enemies. If you can't picture it in your head, picture it this way. Captain America has gone over to Hydra. That's what's happening right here. How did it look in Israel? We don't know exactly what everyone thought about it, but if you go and read 1 Chronicles chapter 12, this portion of Israel's history and David's history is recorded there as well, and just kind of from a different angle. What we do find out in 1 Chronicles 12 is that there were some who were still loyal to David in Israel. There were some who, even though he seems to have crossed over, even though he seems to be over here in Ziklag with the Philistines, we we don't really know why. There were some that were still loyal to him. And so if you go and read the story, you'll find this. Now, these are the men who came to David at Ziklag while he could not move about freely because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. They were bowmen and could shoot arrows and sling stones with either their right or their left hand. They were Benjaminites, Saul's kinsmen. So some of Saul's own kinsmen, ambidextrous, super-skilled warriors, were coming to David while he was in Ziklag, having apparently crossed over to the Philistine territory. So if you read the chapter, you'll see David was understandably a little concerned about why they were coming to him. I mean, they were Saul's kinsmen after all. If he received them, were they going to turn on him and take him out right there? So he would ask them, and they would respond, no, peace to you, peace to your men. God is with you, for God has helped you. And as those who were loyal to David continued to come over to him while he was at Ziklag, 1 Chronicles 12, 22 says, before long, his troop of 600 swelled to a great throng like the army of God. What's going on with David? What was David doing during these 16 months? Well, that's where the story picks up in verse 8. David and his men went up and made raids against the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. And David would strike the land and would leave neither man nor woman alive, but would take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments and come back to Achish. Is that what you've expected from David up to this point? Is that the kind of action and behavior you think is going to come? It's devastating. It's unexpected at this point in the story. Yet as you read it, you you have to read it with the larger lens in mind and realize that all of these people that the writer names here, these were all original Canaanite tribes, tribes that were to be removed by Joshua and Israel when the land was given. But like we've already said, Israel failed to do it. Back then, God was bringing his judgment on Canaan, and instead of obeying, the people disobeyed. Canaan and all of their idolatry got into Israel. So here, on one hand, David is fulfilling the earlier command of God. Are we supposed to read this and understand that David, in some sense, is a newer Joshua? I don't know. Maybe. But the writer is very clear here about what David's motive was in what he was doing. 
David's motive was not for the glory of God. David was not working for God's glory. Rather, as we read it, we see God working in David's sin for his own glory. Pick up the story in verse 10. When Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jehemelites. I don't know how you say that one. I just threw that one out there. Or against the Negev of the Kenites. And David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking, lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom, or literally the word, their policy, all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. So for 16 months, David, on the southern border of Philistia, made raids against neighboring towns that on the one hand were Canaanites who originally occupied the land that God had promised that God's people never removed from the land. So in some sense, he was finishing out in obedience the command of God to his people. And on the other hand, he was acting in the best interest of the Philistine area and government by protecting their southern border. So he wasn't acting against the Philistine interests. He just for 16 months wasn't very honest with the king about what he was doing. He straight lied through his teeth. Every time he would take some of the livestock and some of the garments that he kept in those battles, he would take them to Achish. He would give his appropriate tribute to the king out of the spoils that he had won. And when Achish said, where have you been and what have you done? He led Achish to believe that all of this came from neighboring Judea towns, towns of Israel, that he went to battle against Israel. And Achish was all too happy to agree to that. Because the regions that David mentioned of Israel were near the regions where David went to war. And as was his policy, he didn't leave anyone alive that could tell the true story. It wasn't for God's glory he was acting. He was laying everyone to waste so that no one could tell the king what he was really doing. And this was his policy for 16 months. It's brutal. It's not what we would expect. In fact, one scholar, Gordon Ketty, is a Scottish preacher of the 19th century. Ketty said, David was brilliant and successful, but he slaughtered whole communities and lied through his teeth to Achish in the process. He had left his principles in the mountains of Judah and boxed himself into a corner where deceit and ruthlessness were the staples that kept him alive. And here's the thing as the story begins to come to an end in this chapter in verse 12. It seemed to work. Verse 12 says, Achish trusted or believed in, trusted David, thinking he has made himself an utter stench to the people of Israel. Therefore, he shall always be my servant. That, my friends, is hard to believe about David. It's not what we've expected at this point. The doubt that marked the start of the story, the despair that David rightly was feeling and living in over 10 to 15 years of running, whether it was mixed with noble justifications or not, David's decisions in his despair have taken him down a road that no one saw coming. He's gone over to the Philistines, he's spending his time raiding and destroying, and he's lying through his teeth. And while going over to the Philistines read one way may not be treasonous, 
And while read one way, his brutality was effective and maybe justifiable, what we know for certain was that he was motivated by covering up his lies to the king, not the glory and the service of the Lord. And if you just take a moment at some point this week and try to go back and read this story like a human and try to understand and consider those moments in your own life when circumstance and situation made space for despair to grow in your heart and in your life. You might find that you know the road that David is on all too well. I know I do. Some of the darkest moments in my life came as a result of doubt and despair. My heart and my mind would scramble for every conceivable justification, every positive angle I could make for the decisions that I was taking to fix the reality that I was in, to fix the situation that was causing me so much despair. No matter how hard I worked and how much I justified, I found myself doing things I would have never imagined myself doing, things I don't think people who knew me would have ever imagined I was even capable of. Chapter 27 shows us what seems to be an altogether different David than the one who slew Goliath and declared the battle is the Lord's, not by might, not by sword, but the battle is the Lord's. Seems to be an altogether different David than the one we've even seen in recent weeks, who twice spared Saul's life, even when his men were willing to do the dirty work for him so that his hands wouldn't be bloodied by it. Even last week, Abishai said, let me put the spear through him right now. I can get it done. And David said, no, we're not going to raise our hand against the Lord's anointed. And he goes as far as to even give Saul, the one chasing him, trying to kill him, to give Saul his spear back. This chapter seems to show an altogether different David. And any honest reading of the story reveals a, a cocktail of faith and ungodly compromise. And the only way that David could even begin to vindicate his actions is through some version of the ends justify the means defense. But it's an altogether different David than even the one who first came to the Philistines years before. And getting out after acting like a madman wrote what we have in Psalm 34 where he said, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Where's that, David? Friends, chapter 27 of 1 Samuel shows us that David has a sinful nature just like you and I. Most of you are probably familiar with David's sin with Bathsheba. As one writer said, his sin with Bathsheba shows David's weakness in his time of strength and power. But this chapter shows his weakness in a time of anxiety and affliction, in a time of despair. David, like us, in despair and weakness, he was determined to fix his situation, to find his own deliverance through cunning rather than seeking the Lord's deliverance. If you go back and read it, you'll see in this chapter and even in the next ones to come, there's no mention of the Lord at all. The only priest remaining in Israel is with David, 
No mention of David going to the priest for guidance or direction. No mention of David trying to understand what the Lord's will or word for this circumstance would be. No mention of David going to godly friends, trying to understand how he might respond to the situation and the despair that he's feeling. And here's the thing, for all the scheming and all the cunning and all the apparent success, David could not manage the unforeseen consequences of his sin. If there's anything to be reminded of or wake up to this morning, it's this. Our sinful responses to difficult circumstances and situations, when despair even sets in, and despair itself isn't sinful, but when we respond to despair sinfully, our sinful responses to difficult situations, do you know what happens? They only create more difficult situations. That's all that happens. And now we have another situation that we have to respond to. And as we respond wrongly to the first one, we're more likely to respond wrongly to the second one. And guess what that does? It creates a whole new situation we have to respond to. For all the apparent success that it seems like on the surface, and some people want to read this chapter only this way, David intentionally and wisely went over to the Philistines. It wasn't treason, it was wisdom. Maybe he asked for the city of Ziklag so that he could take that city back for the Lord the way Israel didn't earlier. He raided against all those cities and towns that were enemies of Israel, doing the Lord's work while tricking the king of Philistines, the Philistines. For all the apparent success that might be there on the surface, he couldn't manage the unforeseen consequence of his sin and his lies. That's why when you begin the next chapter... Chapter 28, the first two verses go like this. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. And Achish said to David, understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. And David said to Achish, very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Achish said to David, very well, I'll make you my bodyguard for life. So successful was David in currying the favor and the loyalty of the king That when the king rightly determines, now I'm going to go to battle against Israel, of course David had to see this coming. But the king says, I've got this army with me along with my army. Now's the time I'm going to fight Israel. He comes to David and says, you're going to fight with me. And guess what? You're going to be my right-hand man. And David and all of his fighting men have to be poised to go to battle against Saul and the armies of Israel. You probably learned it as a child. Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. No one saw chapter 27 coming in David's story. It's a dark chapter in his life, but it's an honest one. It's an altogether relatable one. And what is it by the grace of God that you and I can even begin to take away from this chapter? other than the exposure of and reminder of our own sinful nature. Two things really quick. First one, you and I must be serious about learning the craft of wisdom. And that's a phrase from the saints of old. I didn't make that one up. The church has been saying that for generations. You and I must be serious about learning the craft of wisdom. You're probably familiar with Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to man, right? 
especially in times of despair. When the space between the hope in God and the promises of God and the brokenness of the everyday we're in, when the space between those two things feels so overwhelming and we feel stuck and despair sets in, there is a way that seems right to man. And as you read the surface, on the story on the surface, David's decisions and his way seem successful. Saul quit hunting him. His men, their families, their children, they had a space to live, they had a rest. Ziklag had to be better than a cave. No one was trying to kill them. He could go out and attack Israel's enemies, all the while lying to the king and earning his favor. There's a way that seems right to man, but more often than not, it's very short-sighted. David was being treated unjustly by Saul. No one would claim that living like David was easy. But in the long run, was living the way that he was living, on the run, in the wilderness, in the cave, looking over his shoulder, was all of that worse than living the rest of his life out being known as a traitor? See, short-sightedness sees the immediate circumstance that we're in as all-consuming. If I can just get away from this, short-sightedness is, is really the origin of the if-only fallacy. If only this would be fixed, if only this person would do this, if only this situation would be this way, if only this decision had been made, if only they gave me this, if only we did this, then everything would be okay. But the if only is a fallacy. There is no shortcut to wisdom. There's no shortcut to discernment. But the Bible gives us principles for how you and I approach circumstances like this when despair sets in. When despair is present and we see reality and we see the world we're in and our heart begins to shrink the hope of God and the promises of God down to the size of our situation. When we determine in our minds that, that we'll fix it, we'll find a way to save ourselves, we'll find a way to fix the situation, we'll find a way to, to get out of it. When the determination gives rise to a level of denial and we create all manner of false hopes in our life where we can see the decision we made might turn out Okay. Friends, it's then that we have to be reminded we need to be serious about the craft of wisdom. Proverbs 3, 5 through 6 does not say don't use your understanding. It says don't lean on it. Lean on the Lord and use your understanding. Don't lean on your understanding and use the Lord. There's a difference. We have to be serious about learning the craft of wisdom. There were no prayers for wisdom in this chapter. No effort to consult God's word. No talks with the priest. No appeals to godly friends for insight. And we already know that David has been without the blessing and the gift of corporate worship with God's people. 
All of those things are means of grace that God gives us to grow in wisdom and discernment. And when we neglect them, we neglect them to our own detriment. When we neglect them, our confidence in the Lord weakens, our doubts grow, and our tendency to give in to sin and temptation rises. And so it's right that one scholar wrote, in his panic, in his despair, David stopped waiting on the Lord's timing for his deliverance, and he cast himself along a path of unbelief that could only lead to trouble. Friends, even in times of despair, even in preparation for times of despair, we have to be serious about learning the craft of wisdom. But secondly, and this is the one everyone's probably most familiar with, we we have to practice the discipline of preaching to ourselves. Did you notice that this chapter started off by saying that David said in his heart? David was actively listening to the voice of his fears and his doubts. You and I know this already. We say it around here all the time, but you and I are always talking to ourselves. We're always propagandizing our hearts. And what we say and what we listen to is going to direct our paths. So it's crucial that we speak to our souls the truth, especially about the adequacy and the sufficiency of God. Indulge me for just a minute. No one made this more clear to the church than Martin Lloyd-Jones. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor in London in the last century. He was a medical doctor before he ever became a pastor. And noticing the condition of his congregation at a certain point in his ministry, he preached a series of sermons on spiritual depression. That series became a book. In that book, Lloyd-Jones says this, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression is a sense in this, We allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourselves. Am I just trying to be deliberately paradoxical? Far from it. This is the very essence of wisdom. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday, where the despair comes from. Somebody is talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. He says, consider Psalm 42. This man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He asks. His soul has been pressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and he says, self, listen for a moment. I'm going to speak to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must say to your soul, why art thou cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, abrade yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God, instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. And having done that, you end on this great note, defy yourself and defy other people, defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man in the psalm, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance, who is the health of my countenance and my God. 
Friends, you and I have to practice the discipline of preaching to ourselves rather than just listening to all the doubts and fears and negative propaganda in our heart. Preaching to yourself, and we can take another week and another time to talk about it, preaching to yourself is simply the habit of what the Bible calls lament. They're not separate things. Biblical lament is recognizing that you live in the space between the fullness of hope and the promises of God coming to fruition and the brokenness of reality of your everyday. The space between is where we live. It's the place of lament. Preaching to yourself recognizes that reality. It owns that reality, yet it actively fights against allowing your hope in God to shrink to the size of your despair and situation. That's all it is. It's preaching to yourself. Ironically, and this is the thing, ironically, the best example of this in the entire Bible is David. But in chapter 27, he's not preaching to himself. If you go back and read the Psalms, so many of the Psalms, especially the Psalms in the 50s, those were written during this period of wilderness of David where he's running from Saul all the time. And all of them, to some degree, are an exercise in preaching to himself. And they're all an exercise in biblical lament. David speaks in very clear, purposeful, personal language. I, I feel this. I see this. This is the situation. This is the reality. He owns the reality of the circumstance that he's in. He addresses God in real emotion. He names that space between the hope in God's promises and the reality that he's facing. And then he makes a request. Rescue me, deliver me, defeat these enemies, sustain me, guard me. And as he pours himself out, he remembers. He remembers who God is and what God has done. For you have, for you are. Just think about all that he had here in this moment in his life he could have held on to. Instead of giving in to the despair, if he had just preached to himself like he was so apt to do in so much of his life, all the fodder he had for the ways that God has stepped in and cared for him physically and spiritually and emotionally. For you are and for you have and for you continue to be. Therefore, I will. I will praise. I will run to. I will trust. Friends, this is preaching to yourself. This is the essence of what biblical lament is when despair sets into our heart. It's addressing the real emotion and situation. It's requesting God to be God. It's remembering who he is, who he has been, who he's promised to be, and resolving to respond accordingly. That's the stuff of preaching to yourself. And here David seems to have been listening to the propaganda in his heart, not preaching the truth to himself. Church, our life is lived every single day in the wilderness in a way very similar to David. Life between the already and the not yet. David was between being anointed and being appointed. It was a difficult space. Like David, we have an enemy who seeks to devour our joy, our hope, and our confidence in God. Yet unlike David, we have a king who's gone before us in the wilderness and a spirit who is alive and at work in our hearts, who is the down payment and guarantee of all the fullness that God has promised. We live in the space between. And while we're there, we have to be serious about learning the craft of wisdom. We have to practice preaching to our souls. 
Let's say together with Lloyd-Jones that we will resolve to remind ourselves of God, who he is, what he's done, what he's pledged himself to do, and having done that together, we end on this great note together in confidence in God, we'll defy other people, we'll defy the devil, we'll defy the world and say, I will praise him for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. Let me pray for us this morning as we prepare to respond to God's word. Father, thank you that you show us the less desirable aspects of our heart and life as we come to your word. That as we even read stories like this, we see the same temptations, the same proclivities to despair, the same determination to fix it and to save ourselves, the the same pursuit of false hopes in the midst of situations. We, We see that same proclivity in us, Lord. Thank you that you don't hide that reality, but seeing it drives us back to our ongoing need for you and your grace. Seeing it drives us back, reminds us of the sufficiency of your grace to us and your son, the sufficiency of your spirit at work and alive within us. It drives us back to real lament where we can own the difficulty in the situation, but we can remind ourselves with confidence of who you are, what you've done, what you've pledged to do, and what you're actively doing in us and through us, and we can resolve Resolve in confidence, resolve in delight, resolve in joy born out of a confidence in you. We can resolve in those moments to believe, to trust, and to walk accordingly. Lord, we ask that you would make us into people who are disciplined in the pursuit of wisdom and disciplined in the practice of preaching the good news of your grace to ourselves. Lord, we ask that you would do that in Jesus' good name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.